Mormonism and scripture twisting. I don't think that means what you think it means. Today we're going to hear from Jason Oaks. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Like you heard in the intro, today we're going to be talking to Jason Oaks. Uh, he's been on the podcast a couple times before, and we're going to be talking about Mormonism and scripture twisting. Also, friends, uh, oddly enough, this is like a, a deja vu moment. Uh, at the end of this podcast, when I get to the end and I thank Jason for coming on, don't stop listening right there. There was a conversation that we had off the record. <laughs> yeah, right. Off the record, as I'm going to put it on the end of this podcast, this is what happened the last time I talked to Jason. We have really fun conversations. And then suddenly, as I'm listening to it later, I'm like, you know, that's really good. Jason, are you okay with me putting that on the podcast? Of course, he said yes. And so uh, when we have the official ending of the podcast, keep listening because there's about another 10 minutes. We're going to be talking about the uh, recent announcement uh, by the LDS, the Mormon Church, uh, about this this seer stone of Joseph Smith's. So don't miss that. Also, friends, a little announcement. I think you'll find it fascinating. I certainly did. Uh, yesterday, which would have been September 8th of 2015, I had the honors of being a guest on Eric Hoven's Creation Today show. That was awesome. That's the first time I've had that type of an experience uh, where uh, I'm actually showing up on somebody's TV show. So, uh, yeah, that won't be coming out until, well, you think I sandbag episodes? Eric actually is recording next season's episodes. Next season doesn't even happen or start until February 1st of 2016. So it's going to be a while before you see my ugly mug <laughs> on Eric Hoven's show. But I'm pretty excited. What an honor. Uh, and what a, just an amazing experience that was. So I, I'm feeling pretty blessed. I thought I'd brag about that. Uh, anyway. One more thing, I think I need to brag on Jason Oaks. Jason Oaks just accepted a position in Roundup, Montana, uh, as a senior pastor of a church, uh, Emanuel Baptist Church. And again, that's Emanuel Baptist Church in Roundup, Montana. So if you're anywhere in that area and you don't have a church home, you really need to go and check out Jason and... Uh, Go visit his church. Go say hi. Tell him I sent you. <laughs> and so anyway, let's get to it. Jason Oaks, welcome back to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, thanks for having me back, Michael. Absolutely. It's, it's always fun talking to you. It, I mean, we have a good time. Um, so yeah, guys, today we're going to be talking about mm, Mormonism. And uh, <laughs> that seems to be what Jason's got on his mind a lot. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the, the, the scripture twisting that often happens uh, with Mormons. Uh, and, and there are many scriptures within the Bible that can be used when you're talking to your, your Mormon friends or family that really do sound like, for example, that the Bible is teaching that um, we can become gods, for example, or that uh, baptisms for the dead are actually biblical. Um, these scriptures can be used, and in fact, they've been used on me in my living room. And I have to admit, the first time I was exposed to them, I, I, I found myself tongue-tied and kind of, you know, what, what, what is that? I never noticed that before. So we're going to be talking about some of these different scriptures that are most often used by Mormons that actually aren't saying what the Mormons believe they're saying. And so, uh, Jason, uh, one of the scriptures that you and I talked about recently is, uh, for example, Psalm 82.6, this whole idea of, of you, can be, you can be gods. Uh, the, the Bible says, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Uh, what say you 
about that scripture, Jason? Well, I, I had to really dive into the scripture recently. I, I saw an article that was posted on a fair Mormon's website by a, a gentleman named Ben McGuire, who is an LDS apologist, or at least he writes for them occasionally. And I, I got exposed to it because I was having a conversation with a different LDS guy on Facebook uh, about the Trinity. And so he kept on uh, basically mocking my monotheistic tendencies, and uh, he encouraged me to read this article. And the article was talking about how Psalm 82 and then Jesus' affirmation of it in John 10 was uh, an example of what they believe, the LDS believe, is a divine counsel found in the Old Testament. Basically, the claim is that uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrews, originally were more henotheist, I guess is the technical term, in which you believe in one God, but you acknowledge the existence of other gods. And, uh, you know, even that you acknowledge that there's uh, rational or reasonable worship of those other gods. And then mm -hmm. later on, then uh, with Hezekiah and some of the, you know, when they returned back to the Holy Land after the exile, then there was this desire to push strict monotheism. And so then basically the LDS believed that uh, the Old Testament was kind of revised at that point. Um, and then it, it appears to be much more monotheistic than it was in reality. And so I had to really dive into that because that's a lot of different criticisms at, at one time. And so what I found is that, you know, an easy way to deal with those passages, first of all, let's just take John 10, when Jesus uh, quotes this passage and he's talking to the Pharisees and there's no way to get around this for the LDS when he says to the Pharisees, you are gods. Now, Jesus, unless the LDS are willing to believe that the Pharisees in Jesus's day that he was talking to while they were still alive were gods, then it can't mean what they wanted to mean. Um, because he's talking about present tense. He doesn't say you have the potential to become gods. He didn't say you are gods in embryo um, or any of that uh, stuff. He said you are gods. And uh, so then that let's take that just on a side. Now go back, going back to Psalm 82, you have the word Elohim. And the word Elohim is used in a lot of different ways. Um, and mostly, and almost exclusively, you have it talking about the God, the one true, the most high God. And uh, that's how it's generally understood. And even in LDS terms, they believe that Elohim is the proper name for God the Father. And so they have kind of a problem explaining why Elohim all of a sudden refers to these other gods as well, just from that standpoint. But Elohim uh, is more the generic Hebrew term for God. Uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or however you would uh, pronounce that unpronounceable four-letter four name for God that's given to Moses in Exodus 3 is more uh, referring to the one true uh, Most High God, which interestingly enough, uh, the LDS would say that that's actually referring to Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, that the Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament is actually Jesus. Um, so that's one set of problems. But then what you find is that um, in the Old Testament, the thing that really was the turning point in the conversation was talking about Moses. Now, Moses, in Exodus 7 and a couple other places, God says to Moses, I will make you a god to Pharaoh. And the word there is Elohim. And so what I, I got this gentleman to admit was that Moses was not part of the divine council, yet he was called Elohim. And so basically you have a human judge who uh, is a human, will die, 
and yet he is called an Elohim. And so if you put that onto Psalm 82, what you find in the very next verse, verse 7, uh, Psalm 82, is God pronouncing judgment on these so-called gods by saying that, you know, you are gods, but you're going to die like men. And so another kind of complication, if these are real legitimate gods, or even speaking about our potential to be gods, this creates a huge problem because now you have gods that are capable of dying. And uh, I, I, I've never really seen that in LDS theology either, um, other than the fact that if you believe that God is subject to the priesthood and that he subjected gods who are higher than him, if he ceases to fall out of their favor, he could be demoted from his position of God. And so I, I guess you would have to believe the same thing's true. But all down the line, realistically, what Psalm 82 is talking about is human judges who, um, because of their position of judgment over the people, they were functional gods to the people. And God was, and maybe they were even presenting themselves in that way, um, and God is kind of throwing down judgment because they were uh, bad judges. They weren't taking care of the people, and they weren't taking care of the people they should have had compassion and love for or leading and guiding them into the truth. So, yeah. Oh, I was just, just going to add in there, it's interesting, too, because the Pharisees and the uh, of of you know John ten thirty five also the Jews in Psalm eighty two six they were still alive they had not followed any path of exaltation to become a god yet so according to Mormon theology how could they truly be gods when they haven't even followed that path they're still in the flesh well okay I shouldn't say in the flesh because of course. Uh, the father, according to Mormonism, would be a, a, a man of flesh and bone as well. But they're still in this life. They haven't even followed that path of exaltation and been exalted yet. Absolutely. And so, you know, when you have Psalm 82 and Isaiah 41 uses the same terminology as well. Um, but then you also have passages like 1 Corinthians 8, 5, where Paul refers to God's many and Lord's many. Um, which that very verse, since we're talking about twisting, it's amazing how many of these passages, if you just read the entire passage, the, the problem settles, settles itself. Um, and 1 Corinthians 8 is a great example of that. If you just look at the, the verse before, the verse after, he says that these aren't really gods, that there's only one God, and we know that there's only one God. And so he's really just acknowledging, yeah, there's many beings out there that are called gods or acknowledge as gods, but they're not real gods. Right. Right. I just brought this up in a youth class for my youth group. Uh, we're talking about hermeneutics, and we brought up First Corinthians, uh, what did you say, 8? Yes. Um, and we, we talked about that passage because uh, some people will over conceptualize, excuse me, uh, that verse and say, well, and, and the Mormons do this and say that, well, they're refer referring to uh, in this passage the, the overabundance of idol worship. And the idols that they were worshiping were not gods, but that's not saying there are no other gods, period which is totally incorrect. Right, um, exactly. And so um, some other verses that you can use that challenge this whole idea of there being other gods or divine counsel or even uh, the Mormon concept of the Godhead, which they believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate gods, even though they would say technically Heavenly Father is the only God that we worship or have to do with. In Isaiah 44, 6, um, God makes it clear he's the only God. But then you have, even in that verse, you have two beings being spoken of. You have God and the Lord. And then in Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, we have God saying that before me nor after me, there will be no other God formed. 
And uh, that challenges this idea that there were gods before God, or that there will be gods after God. And he also says in that verse that there's no other Savior besides him, which actually points to the divinity of Jesus, because if Jesus is the Savior, then he has to be that same God that was spoken of in Isaiah 43. Right, right, right. I just want to read that because it's so concrete. There's no way around it. So it's Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. Uh, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand. I mean, he really wants us to understand this. That I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Okay, that totally destroys the idea of this infinite progression of, of gods. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I mean, there, there's just no wiggle room there. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to say one more thing going back to Psalm 82. Um, I, I know this isn't a conversation about Bible translations, but Bible translations really do uh, do some harm here, especially some of the modern ones. I just listened to a debate between James White and, uh, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Martin Tanner uh, back in the day, and they were talking oh. about the possibility of uh, humans becoming gods from the scripture. And uh, one of the things that Martin Tanner, the LDS man, quoted is he quoted that the Good News Translation translates Psalm 82, verse 1, at least, as God presides within the divine council. And mm -hmm. so this is, a, this is a Christian you know, translation, supposedly, um, that is taking the route, and some Christian modern scholarship is being quoted by the LDS guys um, with giving legitimacy to this idea that the, the Hebrews basically were just like the Canaanites and the Egyptians and all these other religions around them that believed in a divine council, and they, they point to certain terminology uh, that's used in some of these other groups uh, that's in common with what you find in the Old Testament, but they're trying to just basically, it's circular reasoning, saying, well, because these other groups use this term and it's in the Old Testament, then that must mean the same thing as what they meant, and so therefore there's a divine council, and that God was presiding over a council of gods who he gave authority over the nations. And they, there's even one passage, I believe it's like in Deuteronomy 30 or 32, that they were pointing to uh, some translation that they claimed from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that basically the, the, the translation of the passage said that God appointed gods over the nations. And so all of these, in that article that I was referencing earlier, this guy was making an argument that all of these other foreign gods that were worshipped, you know, like Baal or Asterisk or any of these gods, were actually gods that were legitimate gods under uh, under Yahweh, and that he was, um, they were part of the divine council, and that's why these other nations were allowed to worship these gods. And I, I just couldn't believe how blatantly polytheistic uh, this whole argument was. And uh, when you really get down to it, when you, the conversations that LDS have within themselves they are not shy about talking about their own doctrine, but the public image that they present out to us is, no, we're Christian just like you guys, and we believe the same things pretty much, you know, and, you know, we just want to be the, acknowledged as the fourth major branch of Christianity, you know, just mm -hmm. like Catholics and Orthodox and Protestant, we just want to be one of those. Mm. Right. Uh, you're bringing up this divine council. Have you ever heard of Michael Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser? Yeah, actually, I, I heard about him because in the article, it, it, there was links all over the place to this guy's work. And um, I, I, I since tried to get in contact with him on, on Facebook. Um, but, yeah, he's doing a lot of work that makes it sound like that's exactly what's going on in the Old Testament um, in reference to the divine council. Um, I, I'm not quite sure that he would agree with the LDS interpretation of that, um, but right. he, he definitely... As far as I know, 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, as far as I know, I, I don't want to defend him too much because I really don't know. I haven't listened to his stuff too much. Uh, but from what I understand, he's actually talking about uh, fallen angels there, that there was a divine council and then there was some kind of, you know, the, the angels fell and that divine council was broken up and uh, those were all angels. Okay, got it. And, you know, that's interesting because a lot of the terminology that they claimed, you know, from these other groups and stuff that they point to, when I looked at the terminology, I was thinking, well, those are clearly angels. You know, uh, you know, they take like references like the sons of God um, or the, the heavenly host or things of that nature. And they're trying to point out that saying, well, these are all references to the divine council. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I guess another scripture to bring up very close to Isaiah 4310 uh, would be Isaiah 40, 45 verses 5 and 6. This is another one that you just can't escape from. Um, it says, I am the Lord and there's none else. There's no God besides me. I girded you, though you knew me not. Wait, no, though... I'm trying to translate to King James, and I'm really doing it poorly. Though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there's none else. So there's no room to wiggle out of that. Um, there's Absolutely. simply no other gods. Absolutely. And, I mean, you can just go through that whole section in Isaiah, and he says it over and over and over again. And, in fact, you know, the, the challenge that God ultimately throws down, and I believe it's in Isaiah 46.10, uh, where he says, um, this is how you're going to know it's me. I'm the only one who can declare the end from the beginning. And uh, along the way, he's, he's challenging and, and somewhat mocking these other, you know, gods to just tell me one thing that's going to happen before it does, um, you know, so that we might know that you're real kind of thing. Can you say what scripture that was again, um, where, where God declares that? I believe it's Isaiah 46.10, but you can check me on that. Okay. That's that's interesting. Um, somehow, some way, I m managed to pass over that, and I think that's really interesting. So, um, you know, Satan cannot know the end from the beginning. His his uh, fallen angels cannot know the end from the beginning. Only God can know the end from the beginning. And uh, that's interesting too, because you know, I as you know, I I, I speak a lot to uh, the New Age movement and uh, different forms of witchcraft and the like. And, you know, they all have their forms of prophecy. Well, hey, even the Mormons have their own prophecies, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own form of prophecy, and, uh, uh, you know, Ellen White, um, right. so many of these who claim to, to know the, the end from the beginning, in a sense, and they get the stuff wrong. Every once in a while they get something right, but, I mean, I mean if you keep throwing guesses out, sooner or later you're going to get something right. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Very different than the, the 100% criteria uh, that God threw down in uh, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Right. Amen. Amen. And that's why in the Old Testament, if you got a prophecy wrong, um, you got stoned. Exactly. You were declared a false prophet, and uh, the punishment was death. Exactly. Uh, it wasn't like uh, what you get with the, the hyper-charismatic movement where... They'll say, oh, well, we're just practicing, and sometimes we get it wrong. No, you, you get it wrong once, and that's it. Um, you know, we don't stone people now, but we it, that just gives us the heart of God. We know that God does not tolerate people who try to prophesy by their own will. Well, you're right that, you know, from a New Testament perspective, that we don't, uh, you know, believe that those people should be put to death. But if you take that principle of putting them to death, um, I, I think that's a useful thing to be able, when you, you show them these things, to be able to say, well, that's what God said to do with these uh, these individuals or these sources that have made these claims and it turned out to be false, that you should put them to death. 
And for that person, what that means is, you know, just put them away. You know, stop going to that church. Stop giving allegiance to them. Stop giving them any kind of trust or credibility that, you know, put the Book of Mormon away. You know, God may call you later to go back and reach those people, but for now, he's calling you to put it to death. Amen. Amen. So you, you don't stone somebody, but their message, you put that message down. That's done. It's, it's no longer something that you listen to. It is false. It's false prophecy. And at that point, uh, like the Bible says, you don't fear them. You don't listen to them. Absolutely. So, you know, in, in reference to this whole scripture twisting thing, I find with the LDS that it's particularly fascinating for me. Um because what I find is that Joseph Smith, some have called him like the master religious synthesizer. And what I see him actually doing progressively over time is I see him sitting with his Bible open and he would come to phrases that nobody has, a, you know, a really in-depth or thorough explanation of, and he would build entire doctrines out of them. And so we can talk about some of those if, if you'd like. Sure, yeah. Okay, so some examples. And, you know, uh, this idea that Joseph Smith pretty much borrowed from Greek philosophy of a pre-existence, um, you read in Hebrews 12, 9, uh, the phrase, the father of our spirits, referring to God. Um, you read in Paul's speech in to the Areopagus in Acts 17, where he quotes Roman uh, poetry saying, we are his offspring. And then you go to Jeremiah, and when God calls him in the ministry in Jeremiah 1, he says, before you were even in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I called you, and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. And so he took those types of verses and developed this whole concept that we existed prior to this life, and that God literally gave birth to our spirits, that we're literally his offspring, and that we came to earth to get these mortal bodies. And so, but uh, some ways that you can counteract that is John chapter 8 is probably my favorite, because Jesus, again, he's talking to the Pharisees, and in verse 23, he says to them, I am from above, you are from below. I am not of this world, you are of this world. And, you know, if you keep on reading the Gospels, you constantly see Jesus referring to, I am the Son of God. And that's an exclusive uh, relationship he's claiming with the Father. And the Pharisees even saw it that way. Um, he says, I was sent from heaven, which that wouldn't be a very unique claim if all of us were sent from heaven. We all preexisted. We're all the sons of God. And um, that we're all not of this world, basically. But Jesus counteracted every single one of those claims. Uh, the other one that's kind of interesting, in 1 Corinthians 15, 46, when Paul is discussing our resurrection bodies, and this is a great passage of Scripture, because I'll just go there after I'm done with this, but um, he says that first we have our natural bodies, and then we get our spiritual body. And that's actually reverse of the way that the LDS believes that the progression works. They would say we had our spirit body, and then we came to earth to get our natural body, which then becomes like a glorified natural body. But, you know, speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, there's another phrase in there that Joseph Smith became intrigued with, and that mm -hmm. is in 1 Corinthians 15:29, he says... Paul refers to those who are baptized for the dead. And nobody, I, to my knowledge, I've never seen anybody come out with in our explanation of what this actually was. But what we do know from the context is that it was not something the Christians were practicing. And the reason we can know that for certain is because all throughout the passage and chapter, Paul uses language of I and we, and then he even throws in some you and, you know, singular and plural, 
And then all of a sudden, in this one verse, he says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? So just grammatically, he's talking about a group that's not him and his church planning crew. It's not the Corinthians or other believers. He's talking about them, some outside group that is practicing this weird thing that the Corinthians, you know, they're in the midst of a lot of the Greek culture and temples and all that kind of stuff. It's probably something that was in some kind of mystery religion or whatever that, you know, they would be familiar with. And he was just, you know, using it uh, as an example, as he was arguing for the legitimacy of the resurrection. So, uh, you know, along the same line, uh, this has to do for the LDS person with the idea of the spirit world. They believe that after we die, we, we go all go to the spirit world, where some of us go to paradise and some of us go to spirit prison. And both of those terms are ex- great examples of what I'm talking about. Okay, um, paradise and spirit prison are both things that uh, terminology that's used in the New Testament. But First um, Peter three nineteen is one of those verses where Peter, and, you know, I almost wish he wouldn't have put this there because, it, you know, it, it's so hard to understand, but um, I believe the Holy Spirit gave me a, a nudge in the right direction. I, I became intrigued with this passage because I didn't have a really good answer for it a few years ago. And so I, bro- I broke out my concordance, and what I found is when Peter refers to Jesus in the Spirit preaching to the spirits in prison, that when you look up the word spirits in the plural, that every single occurrence except for one in which he clarifies the spirits of the righteous, every other single reference is to evil spirits. And so for... Wow. So when spirit is used in the plural, it's almost exclusively used of spirits in prison. The other thing is that that word for preach isn't the word for preach the gospel. It's the word for proclamation. So basically, Jesus went and proclaimed something. I believe he's proclaiming victory to these spirits in prison. Now, uh, if you take in the whole thing with uh, what he says after, that these were spirits that were in prison, who were disobedient in the days of Noah, I believe that links back to Genesis 6. Some wouldn't go that way, but that's my opinion on it. And uh, the other one that's in Peter's epistle is 1 Peter 4, 6, where Peter mentions that the gospel was preached to those who are dead. And so this is another great one that they will pull out and they will say, see, there is a second chance to receive the gospel after death. There are, you know, missionaries that are going and preaching the gospel in the spirit world. And there are some who accept that gospel. But if you look at it uh, from the flow of the text, I believe all Peter's saying is he's saying that they were alive. The gospel was preached to them and now they're dead. You know, so um, the gospel wasn't necessarily preached to them after they were dead, but he says, and he follows it up with, now they've been made alive in the Spirit. And so you have this um, idea there that the gospel was preached to them, they were dead, now they're alive, and there you go. It has nothing to do with the gospel being preached in the Spirit world after death. Uh, but another one I liked, I, I really love to take them to Luke 16. And Luke 16 is the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Or I should say the account, because um, I, Jesus did, usually didn't give names and parables. Um, so you have right. the rich man and Lazarus, and in Luke 16, 26, this is after, you know, the rich man, he's being tormented, and he's calling out to Abraham, and he says, please, can you just do, can you give me some water just to cool my tongue, and, you know, give me some, uh, some rest in this. And in verse 26, Peter says, and beside all this, between us and you, there is a great goal fixed, 
so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And I, I love the way he worded that because it, he almost communicates, look, even if we wanted to, we can't. There's nothing we can do to help you. We can't go from here to there, and you can't go from there to here. And uh, so that that's one that I think you can throw out there. Uh, and there's a lot of other passages that could counter that whole idea of the spirit world and the gospel being preached or the need for baptism for the dead in this life on behalf of dead relatives and all of those types of things. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, it, the uh, Mormons are erecting a temple here in Fort Collins. Well, I live in Loveland, but Fort Collins is right next door. And um, from what I understand, that's where it, where all the baptisms for the dead happen. Uh, it's it's just I don't know. It it it's, it saddens me to know that that's actually going up nearby, and uh, this continues to spread. Uh, it, you know, it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment uh we don't we don't get a second chance we don't get another chance to uh, accept the truth exactly uh, and the truth is certainly not the the mormon gospel exactly and um when is the the temple in loveland going up uh it's it's in fort collins um i pass by it probably once a week uh it's nearly complete uh in fact i i tried <laughs> Oh boy, I tried to get the uh, security system job because you know I, I I run a company that puts in security systems, and I thought you know what, that would be fascinating to get oh, that yeah. job and oh, then yeah. be able to periodically go in there and do service work and be able to see what it looks like from the inside. I I had a feeling that they would not allow a a non Mormon company. And I was told that in, in not so many words. Uh, I, I called the, the general contractor and talked to him about it. And he said that uh, the, the uh, security system installer was basically, it was an inside company that uh, would travel around the nation and do these jobs. Uh, and so as far as I could tell, I think all the contractors that were selected for the job were uh, Mormon-run companies. Well, I, I definitely wouldn't doubt that just from the perspective of they, they do so much to help their own. Um, but the other thing is, even if you got that job, um, the, the way that the temple looks prior to um, when they open it up to the public um, and after they open it up to the public are two different things because um, you don't get to see a lot of the different things like, the you know, the, the veil um and there's rooms where they don't let you go in and those types of things. And so uh, you may have gotten to be able to go into some rooms that uh, uh, people don't usually get to go into, uh, installing security systems. But uh, that would have been pretty cool. But I, I would uh, just to throw out a, you know, a selfless uh, advertising here, if uh, you guys <laughs> have need of somebody who would come out, you know, around the time where that opens and the whole open house to – you know, help um, explain some of these things to um, the people uh, in the church. You know, I could do that either in person or, um, you know, through video kind of thing. Um, hmm. So I just want to throw that out there um, because, yeah. you know, usually what's going on in that area is right about now. And for a, a little while going back, they've been prepping their people to get them temple ready because if they haven't had a temple within, you know, reasonable driving distance, which maybe they have um, in Colorado, but um, if they haven't had one, then most of their people, even if they have a temple recommend, they haven't gone to the temple. And so they're probably pushing that really hard. Get yourself ready, get yourself temple worthy so that you can go, go in there and start doing temple work when this thing gets here. Interesting. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I figured that <clears throat> I've heard it said that, that they will uh, allow the public to go into the building, the temple right after it's built and then after they've had a period of time where the public can go in, they'll kind of rearrange things and uh, really change the inside of the temple yet again 
so that people really don't know what it looks like inside these temples. I guess I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard that in, in other podcasts from people that used to be Mormons. Um, but whatever the case, I figured if I got that job, I would get reoccurring service work. And so over the years, I would be allowed to get in there. But yeah, right. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was it was it was wishful thinking. I tried. Um, yeah, whatever the case, I don't think there are any other temples in this area that I'm aware of. I don't think there's anything in northern Colorado. So um, th this would be, you know, something completely new in this area. And I know that uh, there is <clears throat> somewhat of a, a um, uh, marketing campaign that's been hitting this area as well to um, really get people aware of Mormonism and make, you know, put on a good face to Mormonism. Right. And that, that's exactly what the open house period is about. Um, it's more evangelistic than anything um, because, you know, this is a, a building that, you know, after this, this period's over, you know, uh, even if a loved one's getting married in there, you're not going unless you're temple ready, ready uh, or temple worthy. And so they they bring you in there. I, I went to the one in Newport Beach when it opened in California. And, you know, they have this video about, you know, hey, they had temples in the Old Testament and we have temples because that's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, this is what we do and, you know, that kind of thing. And um, this is the Christian thing to do. And we're the one true church. And don't you want to be a part of us? And so that's basically the um, uh, the mindset, you know, they want to communicate, hey, there's nothing weird about this. There's, you know, um, this is a Christian thing. This is biblical. This is, um, you know, it, so it kind of calms the nerves as well as reaches out to those who might be curious or, um, you know, think about joining. Hmm. Now, what really does go on inside the temple? Uh, well, there's a couple of different things. Uh, the, the first thing that one needs to do is get their endowment. And the endowment is basically a, an anointing process in which you're given your new garments um, and then uh, different parts of your body are anointed for service to God. Um, and along the, the whole thing, you're saying different um, different things, um, taking oaths, taking covenants, and then you go from there um, and you work your way through the three levels of heaven, which we can get there in a second. Um, uh, in the, the temples are all designed with their different rooms so that you're working your way from the, the celestial to the terrestrial to the celestial kingdom. And to, to get into the celestial kingdom, you have to go through the veil. And in order to go through the veil, you have to learn the, the different tokens of the priesthood, which are these secret handshakes that they teach you along with these different things that you say. Um, uh, there's a whole video teaching, giving the plan of salvation, all that kind of stuff. Um, those things are very Gnostic ideas. Uh, the Gnostics were um, kind of, it was a Greek philosophy first, and then they kind of started borrowing Christian stuff in the second century and becoming a, you know, a false branch back then. And, they believe that Jesus taught the secret knowledge that you would need uh, to give these passwords to get past these uh, different guardians once you die in order to get to back to uh, God and uh, ultimately mm. the one true God. And so that's a very Gnostic idea. Um, although the Gnostics believe that all matter is evil. And so you kind of have the flip side where we had to come to this, earth to have mortal bodies so that we can become gods. Uh, so that's different, but mm. there, there are similarities there, but also the other major source is that Joseph Smith introduced the temple ritual after he very, very quickly became the grand master Mason um, right. in Nauvoo, Illinois. And the temple ceremony in many, many, many ways is a copy and an echo of the Masonic temple ritual. Oh, man. And, you know, if there's any Mormons listening today, uh, I just want to say this, that the gospel, the whole point of Christ dying on that cross was to purchase not your ability then to repent of your sins and live a, a, a good Mormon life and reach his path of exaltation. 
Uh, Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins, total and full. He said, it is finished. Um, it's not by any works we can do. It's not by any handshakes that can get us into heaven, any Masonic passwords uh, or, or gestures. It is solely by what Christ did. You know, you look at the Old Testament and the sacrifices, those were a type and a shadow pointing forward to Christ and that he would be the Lamb of God. He would be God in the flesh, living on this planet, living a perfect life, and then willingly giving up his life on that cross as a sacrifice for our sins, that, that we might understand this. And when we trust in Christ, that's it. We trust in Christ and we are saved. That's it. We're allowed in heaven. Uh, there are no handshakes. There are no passwords. And we do not become gods. We will be servants of the Most High for all eternity. We won't be gods. It, it's sad. It, it is a perversion of the gospel. You cannot find that Mormon plan of salvation anywhere in the Bible and and friends, if you're a Mormon and you and you just I just challenge you, I beg you, just read the New Testament. Just read it with an open mind and see if you actually see any Mormonism there. It's not there. If you just read it at face value and try to understand what it says, Mormonism is nowhere taught in there. It it's it's very straightforward. It's easy to understand. Amen. Uh, you know, the other thing I would just say to that is that um, somebody said it well, that when Jesus died on the cross, one of the major things that happened was that that veil in the temple was torn in two and giving us direct access into the presence of God. And what Joseph Smith did is he came along and put the, t the temple curtain back up. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it, it's too bad. It is too bad. You know, and in no way are we trying to bash Catholics in this podcast. Uh, really, we want to encourage Christians about the truth. And if you're a Mormon and you're listening, we're doing this so that you can understand the truth as taught in the scriptures. Um, you know, the, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and, and the teachers that came after that have been spreading a false gospel uh, it, it is a false hope. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the whole point of this podcast, to warn people about uh, falsehoods and bring them to the truth. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you, you uh, mentioned, too, about some submissive language, uh, Jesus submitting to the Father and how this, this can also be used and, and twisted. Uh, for for the sake of, of Mormonism, you want to elaborate on that? What what scripture were you talking about? Well, all throughout the Gospels, you hear Jesus saying, uh, I can do nothing but that which the Father tells me to do. I, I do nothing what the Father shows me to do or what I've seen the Father do. My my food my is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Uh, just the fact that he was referring to him as his Father, um, and, you know, even after the, the resurrection, you hear him saying the language of, you know, uh, my Lord or uh, your God in my God. And um, I, I believe that's because all of those things is because he was in our place. Um, you have to understand, uh, coming from LDS mindset, it's kind of the reverse, that Jesus came here to just like us, you know, to get his body and to perform his tasks that he was assigned so that he could progress his way um, onto Godhood himself. And for the Christians, it's the absolute opposite that Jesus, always being God, in very nature God, as Philippians 2 says, he uh, emptied himself, that he voluntarily entered into his very own creation, and he became one of us. Even, you know, a baby that's born in a manger in a, you know, very, very small town to probably a very poor family. And Scripture says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. And, uh, you know, we know that 
he knows exactly what we're going through because of that, because we give in to sin. We, we get tempted, and at some point we tap out. But Jesus, he felt the full force of temptation because he, he didn't give in. He never once gave in. He lived a perfect life. And because of that, he was able to die a substitutionary death in our place. And he was able to, as Paul says, become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the great exchange that takes place as soon as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Our sins go on Jesus, and we become the righteousness of God. You know, and um, so you have to understand that um, if you're coming from an LDS perspective, that that's actually the way that Christians view this, is that Jesus took on an additional nature. He took on a human flesh. And when he did that, he he volunteered saying, I'm going to do this completely by the will of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same exact way that once we believe and we were given the Holy Spirit, that we can live that same kind of life if we yield ourselves to him, his kind of power. And it's all by grace. And so Jesus, when he's saying those things, he's saying them in our place. He's saying them as a human being who's on this earth, who's fulfilling the mission as his role as our Redeemer so that he could be an atonement for our sins. And so it's not that Jesus is saying, I, I'm always going to be less than God and that I'm not God. I'm just a human being and God is my father and I'm a separate, um, I'm a separate, complete different being in essence and nature than him. It's Jesus saying in this flesh on this earth, I submit myself to the father so that um, I can play this role. And, but nowhere does that take away from the fact that Paul and John and uh, Peter and all of the New Testament writers make it absolutely clear that Jesus has and always will be um, and always has been God. Mm. Amen. Well said. Well said. Well, okay, Jason, uh, tell me about your podcast. See, friends, Jason has started a podcast since the last time we talked to him. Uh, what's up with that? Well, uh, you actually, I, I have to owe my inspiration to you after listening to you for so long. I, I had been putting out YouTube videos for uh, quite a while, and um, I found that people don't like to watch YouTube for very long. And uh, so... Uh, and I found that my, just on myself, that I like to listen to podcasts as well. And so my podcast um, is basically starting to take um, the different things that God puts on my heart or things from the past and putting it out there. And so um, it's under, you can go to podbean.com and uh, you can look up people of the free gift. And you can find it that way. You can find it through iTunes or you can find it through uh, Podcast Addict, um, the app uh, that I have on my phone. And um, we just go through different apologetics things. It's very much like uh, Michael's podcast, um, just maybe with uh, a little bit more emphasis on LDS and reaching out to Cole than than his at times. But um I, I, for all of you, I invite you to come out there. And I also invite your ideas and your feedback. Um, if there's things that you'd like to hear about, then I'd like to hear that from you guys. Yeah. And it's, and it's an awesome podcast guys. I've, I've, uh, listened to some of the episodes. I have, I have to confess, I haven't heard them all yet, but it's great. It's good stuff. So, um, yeah, I highly suggest to check it out. So yeah, I did. I looked it up while, while you were talking, uh, podbean.com people of the free gift is what you put in the search bar. Uh, yeah, you can find it on iTunes. Most everybody's got, everybody's got an iPhone nowadays and you can find it on the podcast app on your iPhone as well. Um, right. So yeah, check that out. It's a great podcast. Um, and the other thing I'll just throw out there, and I said this last time I was on your show, but everything that we do is for free. Uh, we just have a conviction in our heart that Jesus said, you know, freely you have received, freely give. 
And uh, one of the ways that we want to show what grace is all about is reclaiming this whole idea of free and really meaning free when we say free. And um, so I, if you go to peoplethefreegift.com, you can access all the articles, podcasts, YouTube videos, um, and you can get on our social media pages, all that kind of stuff, absolutely for free. Um, and then whatever the Lord may put on your heart to give, if you're in a position, you're able uh, we we do accept donations, and we appreciate those, but we want it to truly be what God has placed on your heart and not out of compulsion or because we uh, have something that you really want and you we're making you pay for it. Mm. Amen. Amen. Exactly. Right now is not a good time to be rationing bolts, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Let's get this stuff out there. Um you know, our, our, our treasure is somewhere else. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, it really comes down to if we're faithful and we do what the Lord wants us to be doing and we get this stuff out there, uh, we believe that God's going to take care of us. And, and oh, man alive, is that so true in our life? Uh, you know, my family, God has taken care of us. And I don't accept donations. I don't even have to. And God is taking care of the business. And he's taking care of my wife and her job. And, I mean, it's just it's awesome. Now, if I ever go into full-time ministry, uh, obviously I'll change my stance. But um, it's, it's just amazing how God takes care of you. And if you decide to just put stuff out there and just try to get the gospel out, uh, God will, will take care of you. And it's so... Um, but yeah, absolutely, friends. If you uh, enjoy what you're hearing with uh, uh, Jason Oaks and his ministry, People of the Free Gift website, peoplethefreegift.com, uh, you know, please do donate because that helps encourage and and helps Jason continue on with what he's doing. Um, it does take some work. It takes a lot of work, and uh, I've learned, <laughs> I've definitely learned that it takes money to keep a website going. Uh, and, and taking care of all those expenses with the equipment and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. If if you can, help Jason out. Um, it, it certainly is a blessing to him as well. So, And as I uh, threw out there earlier, uh, we do uh, teach seminars, um, and our most popular one has always been uh, reaching out to your Mormon neighbor, uh, which has now kind of become expanded to sharing Jesus with the cults for those who are interested in more of a, a broader uh, seminar. And we're able to do those either in person or set up kind of a virtual uh, thing where you play the videos and then I'm available to answer questions, uh, you know, via the internet. Um, so that if you wanted to get a group together at your church, um, or maybe if you're a pastor listening to this, um, we have that available to you too. And, you know, we don't charge uh, anything for those as well. Um, again, it's just whatever the individual, uh, in the, what the Lord puts on their heart. Oops. I had the mute button pushed. Amen. <laughs> That's awesome. Praise God. Uh, in fact, uh, I think that um, I might take you up on that at our church in Colorado. That would be so cool to have. Uh, yeah, we could play some of your videos like on a Saturday and then Skype you in and uh, you can actually answer questions. Wow, what a blessing that would be. That would be awesome. Very cool. Well, well, yeah, Jason Oaks, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure. Did you see that uh, the, the, the Mormon church unveiled Joseph Smith's supposed uh, seer stone? Yeah, um, you know, when you have the type of friends I do on Facebook, I saw that pretty fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I've seen it all over the place uh, in all the different types of groups and Facebook and everywhere. So um, interesting. I, you know, it's not quite what you expect to see when, you know, it finally comes out and you're like, wow, that looks pretty much like uh, a rock that kind of has some maybe some cool designs on it. But uh, other than that, you know, um, you're, I, I think in my mind, I'm almost picturing like a crystal ball type of thing um and to find out that that was you know what people believed you know could you know find gold on their property or find you know translate uh you know ancient texts is 
uh, a little bit um, alarming, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it, it seems like an interesting tactic that the LDS are uh, <clears throat> taking right now um, because they've done this series of articles or essays uh, that are on the LDS website, uh, which, you know, from what I understand, the best way to get to them is to go to MRM.org, which is uh, Bill McKeever's website, and then you can find them easier than getting on the LDS website. But um, they've come out with all sorts of essays dealing with Joseph Smith's polygamy um, or, you know, just issues that are from the, their historical past that are embarrassing because, it seems like, uh, you know, they have a lot of their younger members that are getting on the Internet and finding this stuff anyway, despite the fact that they are trying to hide it. And a lot of them are having doubts or leaving. And so it's kind of forced them to take a tactic where they say, okay, well, we're going to inoculate them by coming out with, you know, almost the full truth, you know, um, enough to where it, it definitely does damage uh, because they have to reveal some stuff, but there's still stuff that they're they're not quite holding, you know, revealing everything. And uh, because it's coming from LDS sources, I think they're hoping that when they see it on other sources that they'll be kind of, um, you know, inoculated and say, oh, okay, well, our church has dealt with this, so I don't think it's that big of a deal kind of thing. So, I, that seems to be the tactic, so that would just, you know, the seer stone coming out would just be another uh, level of that um, in terms of evidence. It, isn't that interesting? Do you think that that tactic's going to work, or do you think it might backfire? Uh, well, I, it's one of those things I think that their hand was kind of forced. Um So I, I think they know that there's going to be some damage that's done, but I think they're trying to minimize the damage by coming out with them, it themselves rather than, uh, you know, LDS basically before this uh, were saying, no, those anti-Mormons are lying, those anti-Mormons are lying, and uh, don't go on their sites and that kind of stuff, it's all just lies. And uh, now uh, what they're, you know, having to do is say, okay, well, yeah, they were right, um, but, you know, we're coming out with it. So I, I think that it's going to have some damage, but I think the fact that it's coming from an LDS source is probably for some just going to be good enough, you know. Um, okay, well, they have an explanation for it, so that I'm satisfied kind of thing, or at least I can put it back on the shelf for a little while. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And that's kind of how I took it, too. I was thinking, well, yeah, that's going to damage the faith of a lot of people. But again, because it's coming from a Mormon source, it, it they might look at this and they might think, well, OK, that does bother me. But there's answers to it, you know, and, you know, maybe it's not all that bad. Yeah, and, and I think that they're definitely leaning more towards the approach that when they say that Joseph Smith translated by the gift and power of God, that they're leaning into that more. So like uh, the Book of Abraham, you know, how it turned out it was the Egyptian Book of the Dead and, uh, you know, had nothing to do with Abraham. Well, they... um uh, you know, now they're kind of leaning into, well, it doesn't matter what was actually on the parchment. God allowed him to utilize that as a tool somehow to, you know, give us this ancient text of, of Abraham. And same thing with the Book of Mormon, you know, whereas maybe before that they wanted to still have the illusion for their people that he was, you know, translating, uh, at least with the Urim and Thummim, um, that he said he had uh, by actually translating the reformed Egyptian on the plates into English. Uh, but now they're leaning into, well, the golden plates weren't necessary necessarily, you know, to, you know, God gave him the, the gift to be able to bring this text about. And the same thing with like the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. I mean, there's no manuscripts that he was going off of for that. It was just kind of um, like that. Don't like that. 
you know, and just kind of <laughs> scratching out, you know, and, um, you know, like, uh, it's temporarily closed right now, but the LVS Museum, Historical Museum, that's across the street from uh, the Salt Lake Temple, uh, they had a, um, under glass, they had um, uh, a Joseph Smith, uh, like, I think it was supposed to be at least a copy of, like, what he did, and it had it open to, I forget what page, but you could just see, there was just literally cross-outs and writing in the margin, and that's basically what he was doing. Unbelievable. That blows me away that that's something that a person could swallow. I mean, I can understand, you know, there's people out there that will... You know, they'll hear a lot of things and, and, and buy into it. Um, you know, there's dime a dozen. There's lots of people out there that will buy into just about anything. But it, it amazes me that um, thinking people can hear these stories, find out the truth, find out the real history behind Mormonism. And um, even if they're hearing it from a Mormon source, will still think, well, okay, all right, good enough. And, yeah. and go on. Yeah, it surprises me now that people now would, would, would buy into that, knowing that. But um, historically, you know, when it came about, it's the same, you know, time frame when you have, you know, Charles Taze Russell, William Miller, and Ellen G. White, and, you know, all of those same, you know, people that, you know, personal revelation uh, was kind of the hot thing at the time that it was kind of just believed that the church needed to be restored, that uh, we needed to get back to the, the old te- or the, the New Testament church and the book of Acts and, um, you know, the whole thing of like visions and, and prophecy and all that types of stuff with, and even the, uh, the, the concept of people claiming to have visions of Jesus um, you could, you know, Google that and you could find like that you could find tons and tons of stories uh, from that era that actually you can find a lot of similarities to what ended up becoming the first vision story. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me that people then bought into the idea that, well, God communicated directly to Joseph Smith. Hmm. All right, that's officially it. The podcast is over. Again, that was Jason Oaks. His website, peopleofthefreegift.com. Again, the church that he just accepted the senior pastor position at is Emmanuel Baptist Church in Roundup, Montana. Uh, If you're anywhere in that area, you at least got to go and visit him and welcome him to the community. Uh, And with that, I love you guys. And well, we'll see you next week.